Well, welcome. I'm sitting here debating, do I wait for the person on crutches to make it all the way here? So, we'll, we'll start. Yeah, we, you have all night? She said that, so we're going to cover not just 1 John 4, 9, and 10, but we'll just keep on going. That, that balances out with what somebody told me earlier about me talking so long, but the, uh, I'll take your comment, though, not hers. Well, I do uh, want to welcome you here on Good Friday. It is the night that we come and we remember uh, what our Savior did, what it took to save us from our sins. And we're going to open tonight by just reading Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, if you want to turn there. But before we get there, I just wanted to read this little quote. Some of you will have seen it. It got sent around by one of the Christian booksellers this morning, but it ties in so well with what the sermon topic is tonight that I just wanted to read it. It's a quote by a man named Octavius Winslow, who was a Baptist pastor in the 1800s. And he wrote this. He said, Little did the men dream as they bound the fatal wood upon Jesus' shoulder, by whose power that tree was made to grow, and from whom the very people who bore him to death drew their existence. So completely was Jesus bent upon saving sinners by the sacrifice of himself. He created the tree upon which he was to die, and nurtured from infancy the men who were to nail him to the accursed wood. Oh, the depth of Jesus' love to sinners. And our topic, of course, when we get there tonight, is indeed seeing the love of God on the cross. It's easy to see the horror, and we'll see a little bit of that too, but the love of God. Well, let's turn to Isaiah 53, where some 700 to 800 years prior to the birth of Jesus Christ, we see God speaking through His prophet, Isaiah, speaking about the Christ to come, the Messiah to come, and both the person and the work of Jesus on the cross. It's a powerful passage, and we have the great benefit of being able to look backwards and see these wonderful truths. Isaiah 53, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed." All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut, out, cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, 
He shall see the offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide, with, divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you humbly tonight. We come knowing that we are recipients of your mercy and your grace, that you indeed did pour out the punishment for our sin on your Son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. Lord, how grateful we are. And while we come with great sorrow, we also look to your word where it says that we know your love for us by what you have done to save us from our sin and our rebellion against you. Lord, we pray that you will be glorified tonight by our singing, that you will be glorified tonight as we turn to your word, that your spirit will work in each one of our hearts tonight to open our eyes and ears, that we might see what you have done to bring your people into fellowship with you, that you would inspire us and give us boldness to reach those around us with the love that can only be known through your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, if you have your Bible, you can turn to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. This is not actually our text. We're doing something slightly different here because it is Good Friday. And I want to read Mark chapter 15, verse 16 on through 39, because I want everything that we talk about today in the sermon to be in the context of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, because that is why we're gathered tonight. So beginning in verse 16. And the soldiers led Jesus away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another. He saved others. He cannot even save himself. 
Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with Him also reviled Him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, This man is the Son of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. For it is by your word that we know you, that we know your Christ, that we know him as both Savior and Lord. Please open our eyes this evening as we turn to your word now. Let us see the love that was poured out on your people as your wrath was poured out on your son. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1962, the then 76-year-old Swiss theologian Karl Barth gave a series of lectures in America. Very smart man, and the floor was open for questions at the end of the week. Now, as kids often do, especially college kids, somebody came up with what they thought to be a very profound question for him. And they asked him, What is the greatest thought that has ever come into your mind? Well, he paused for a long time, and he looked at the floor as the story goes. And eventually he looked up, and he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Very simple statement. You know the song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It generated a huge response. It's still written about today because it seems so simple, almost childlike, that we know the love of Jesus, we know that He loves us, and we know it from His Word. It's a simple statement, but it is a most profound truth. And so we gather this evening to remember the event that changed world history which was the crucifixion of the Christ, the sinless Lamb of God, Jesus, God the Son incarnate. Often when people talk about services on Good Friday, and I had many leading up to this, they would say things to me like, I kind of dread it because I feel so guilty afterwards. I feel so bad about what happened to the Savior. And because that is usually the focus of the service, it is on the agony that is then inflicted on the perfect Son of God to reconcile all who were once enemies of God, that's all of us, and bring us into loving fellowship with Him by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ alone. So we should feel some emotional response when we read about the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, but my hope tonight is that actually as we go through the text, that you will walk away not only with a recognition of the gravity of our sin and what it required to save us, but more importantly, I hope that you will walk away awestruck by the great love of God that was demonstrated on the cross of Calvary. So in the time that we have this evening, I want to turn to 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10 and reflect upon 
the great love of God that was displayed on that cross in all of its glory. Now, we know that God is love. You, you hear people who are Christians say God is love. You hear people who know nothing about God say God is love. And we know that God is love because the Bible tells us. It's one of the great attributes of God that He reveals to us. And we love to talk about the fact that God is love. But Scripture doesn't just reveal to us that God is love, right? Scripture also reveals to us that He is perfectly holy, thrice holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, right? He is perfectly just. He is a God in whose perfection He cannot and He will not overlook a single sin. He will not leave one sin unpunished. So it is a very complex thing to look at the love of God. We recognize that God is love, but He is a sovereign God. So he chooses who and how to love. He says to Moses, when he reveals himself to him, he said, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy to whom I show mercy. It is not up to you. And so when we know God is love, we also have to recognize that he has no obligation to love any one of us. We have to remember that he chooses to show us His love, that is what it is meant when people say that God's love is unconditional. You hear that all the time, right? God loves you with an unconditional love. God's love is unconditional. What that actually means is simply that we cannot create on our own accord any condition that forces God to either love us or to stop loving us. It's unconditional in that sense. It doesn't mean that He overlooks anything. It means He is sovereign and that He chooses. Now, we can look around us. How do we know God's love? We might look at creation. Certainly, we see the beauty of a day like today. We are coming into spring. We will see things start to grow. You could look at creation, and God's love is certainly present in all of creation, but it doesn't give us a very full picture because we still have natural disasters. We still have property loss. We still have death, and we have seen a lot of that just in the last couple of weeks. God's power executed through His creation. Well, if you can't see it there, maybe you can look to the incarnation, right? You go back to Christmas time instead of Good Friday, and where you see the eternal Son of God was born in the flesh. That is certainly an act of God's great love. But then we would be stuck because we wouldn't be able to figure it out because the fact that Jesus lived among us was God the Son incarnate would actually lack meaning unless we understood why. Why did God send His Son? Why did Jesus live among us? Of course, Jesus gives us that answer, right? In Mark 10, 45, He said, The Son of Man came to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. So the answer to why Jesus came, to how God loves, comes in the form of that dreaded cross. Because it is in the cross, it is only in the cross, that we get to see the extent of God's love for us. We know the great verse, Right? And God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were rebelling against God, while we hated God, Christ died for us. And so St. Augustine once referred to the cross as the pulpit from which Christ preached God's love to the world. I love that statement. The cross is the pulpit from which Christ preached God's love to the world. And that indeed is a bit of a key to our text, which is 1 John 4, 9, and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son 
to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, seeing the love of God in the cross, in the crucifixion, is actually a bit hard for us to grasp. How could God show His love by pouring out His wrath in this gory, bloody scene of the cross? And it's hard for us to understand that because we do not understand the very perilous situation that we actually find ourselves in when we come into life in this world. See, many people can accept at face value if you tell them that God loves them, right? That is an easy thing for any of us to accept because in our minds, we look at it and we think that of course makes sense because we are pretty lovable people. So why wouldn't God love us? But we have to recognize that God's love is a holy love. God's love is a righteous love. God loves us in accordance with how He's revealed His love in His Word and His expectations for us in His Word. So we can read the verse and we can say, God is love, but we have to take all of the Bible into account. Psalm 7, for example, tells us the Lord judges the peoples. Well, we don't factor that into our concept of love in in human constraints, but the Lord judges His people. Peter tells us judgment will begin with the household of God because we know His Word. It tells us that God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation, anger, every day because of the sins committed against Him. It goes on in Psalm 7, it warns if a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. This has all got to be reconciled with the love of God and it takes us to the cross. Because the nature of God is revealed throughout Scripture, who He is, right? And we often refer to that as His law. We think of the Ten Commandments, all of which stem from who God is, but it's much broader than that. His law encompasses Scripture in James 2.10, tells us, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in just one point becomes guilty of it all. So without even touching the doctrine of original sin, we don't even have to get into those complexities. I think it's safe to say we can all agree that every one of us in here has sinned at least once and has lied at least once. I don't think I've ever met anybody who hasn't told at least one lie or who hasn't envied, wanted something that's not theirs. And perhaps even sometime in your life, dare I say even today, maybe had a moment where you did not love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that doesn't even get to the harder things like loving and blessing and praying for our enemies, right? Or loving with a perfect sacrificial love our neighbors. So we know that we are all sinners. We have no reason to doubt the biblical truth that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that creates the problem. That creates a real problem for us. First, it creates a problem because the wages of sin is death. We know that. Spiritual death for sure. Alienation from God for sure. Ultimately, physical death and eternal punishment in hell. That's the real problem. Second, we have the problem because we are created by and we are ruled over by a sovereign, perfectly holy, perfectly righteous God. A God who also reveals himself as a God who never delights in wickedness, never delights in sin. A God who declares in Psalm 5-4 that evil may not dwell with him. We read before, all we like sheep, all of us, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Romans picks up that theme and tells us none is righteous. No, not one, not one single person, no matter how good we think we are, no one understands, no one seeks for God. 
All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Here's the kicker, the close to that passage. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Look around you in the world, even in the church. There is no fear of God before people's eyes. And as such, Ephesians then tells us, then we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were by nature children of wrath. It's a very dire picture that Scripture points for us. We were created in the image of God, and yet by the sin of Adam and the sin that we heap on it ourselves every single day, that image has been marred. And the result of all that sin is that we're actually not lovable creatures to God. We're not. Not to a holy God. Not to a righteous God. And He is perfect, and He is holy, and therefore His wrath must be poured out on all who violate His holiness. We love to talk about God's love, or we like to talk about God's love. Too much love there. But we don't love to talk about God's wrath. That is something we would like to push to the side. We don't usually have a big appetite to dig into it. You have to recognize that wrath actually is not one of God's perfect attributes. He's always love, but He's not always wrath. Wrath is a reaction to sin against Him. D.A. Carson notes it this way, Wrath, unlike love, is not one of the intrinsic perfections of God. Rather, it is a function of God's holiness against sin. Were there no sin, there would be no wrath. But yet there will always be love in God. Where God in His holiness confronts His image bearers, that's all of us, In their rebellion, there must be wrath, or God is no longer the perfect, jealous, holy God that He has revealed Himself to be in Scripture. His holiness is tainted, and if we dilute God's wrath, we diminish and we tarnish His holiness, which He reveals above all things. And so therein lies the problem. That is the problem of every man, woman, and child since the fall of Adam. It is only in understanding our sin, that's where we have to start, and that we stand bearing the wrath of God now and for all eternity. It is understanding our sin and its consequences that allows us to begin to turn and see the full measure of God in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We have to take a step back. We have to ask ourselves, what would it take then to be reconciled to God? to be forgiven of our sin, to be welcomed as His adopted children, to enter into heaven's gates if we stand condemned under the weight of our own sin. Well, it would take someone else. It would take someone to bear the weight of our sins, to drink in full the cup of God's wrath that we deserve. And not any man or woman can do that for you. We can only hope that when we go, we get our just reward. And that would be an eternity of God's wrath. Nobody can do it for you. So to save us from God's righteous judgment, it would take an amazing display of God's love for us. Not in overlooking sin. That's how we define love. We can overlook sin and we make excuses for people and we make excuses for ourselves. And that's not what God does because He would no longer be holy or just. No, He would provide a substitute to pay the penalty for our sin. That is where He begins to show His love. In the first chapter of the Gospel of John, you encounter the reaction of John the Baptist on two occasions when he sees Jesus walking toward him. In the first instance, we read that John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sin of the world. People must have looked and been quite bewildered at that statement. We read it again a few verses later in John 1.35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Now, declaring Jesus to be the Lamb of God today doesn't really mean much. It conveys, I think, the way we use it, a sense of gentleness, a sense of meekness. We think of the pictures that we see with Jesus, with the little lamb on his shoulders, and those kinds of things. It's meekness, it's gentleness, it's love. But that's not the way a first century Jew would have interpreted that. Not not at all. See, they grew up in a system where they knew that simply to pray to God, to, to enter the presence of God, to go into the temple to worship, there had to be an atonement for sin, even as temporary as it would be. We're told in Hebrews, it was never an atonement for sin, but it would at least push away the wrath of God through the sacrifice of an animal, a lamb, a bull, a goat. We know that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, right? Hebrew tells us that. And this sacrificial system that we read about and we talk about, we don't really visualize, but it was bloody and it was gory and it happened consistently all day long as people came wanting to cry out to God. And in these sacrifices, what the people were reminded of consistently was their sin. They were reminded of their sin What an offense it was to God that it required the slaughter of these lambs that they would bring. But it also reminded them of God's grace and God's love because He had provided them, as temporary as it was, it looked forward to Christ, but He had provided them a means of sanctifying them so that they could come into His presence and worship Him and cry out to Him and He would answer their prayer. That is what they think of when they hear, behold, the Lamb of God, that John the Baptist was pointing to the reality that in Jesus, here he was, God is providing the once for all sacrifice that will satisfy his perfect justice and it will extinguish his wrath for all eternity. John was pointing to the fact that the eternal Son of God was among us and he was standing there willingly suffering the humiliation of living as a man with all of our weaknesses and moreover, that he lived For one purpose, and one purpose only, to demonstrate God's abundant love for us by dying on the cross and bearing the weight of sin of everyone who will repent and believe in Him and follow Him as Lord. We read Isaiah 56 in our, or 53, 6 in our opening. I read it just a few minutes ago, but I stopped actually early in that verse. Let me read the whole verse. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And then you get this, but God, right? We're so familiar with it in Ephesians. But God, but God takes action. He says, we have turned away from Him, and the Lord, though, has laid on Him the iniquity of all. He has laid our sins on Christ. Here John shouted, behold, the Lamb of God. Here is God the Son in the flesh, and our sin is going to be imputed. It's going to be counted to Him on the cross. We read that great verse, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. He was the perfect lamb so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God has revealed himself to us in his word. He gave us his righteous decrees, his commands from Genesis to Revelation. He sent his only son to live among us, living perfectly, living sinlessly. Think if that were the end of the story. Where would that leave us? We would have all of His commands in His Word. We would have the perfect example in His Christ. But we would continue to bear the weight of our sins. 
In fact, the condemnation would heap upon itself because now we have seen a man live perfect. And that is why we say that the cross is the central message of the Christian faith. It's the reason the Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, would say, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's why he would say, again, we preach Christ crucified. That is the sum and substance of our message. And that may seem like an odd way to summarize the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world, right? He could have said it this way, we preach Christ resurrected, right? We're going to celebrate that on Sunday. Or how about, we preach that the Son of God came in the flesh. Or we preach that God is love. Any of these things he could have said. He certainly did preach all of those things because they are all true. But when he summarizes it, he summarizes it by pointing to the key element. We preach Christ crucified because without the cross, there's no payment for sin. Without the cross, there is no propitiation, no satisfaction of God's wrath against us. There is no demonstration of God's eternal love for his people. See, if you look through the New Testament, and you look for where God's love is revealed, you are going to most often see that accompanied with a reference to the death of Jesus Christ. I'm only going to give you two examples because we don't have a ton of time. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and did what? And gave himself for me. Revelation 1.5, to him, to Jesus who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood, by His death. And of course, the text we began with, 1 John 4, 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest. It was shown to us. It is how we know it, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And in this is love. Not that we have loved God. It's not a reaction to how good we are. But that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So we can't take a comprehensive look at the love of God. That is too big a doctrine. But I want you to see just a few things in this text. We'll rattle through them. First, I want you to see the depth with which God loved us. Scripture says in Isaiah 59, our iniquities, our sin, have made a separation between us and our God, and our sins have hidden His face from us so that He does not hear. He does not answer our cries. He doesn't. We're sinners. So who's going to close this unpassable barrier between sinful man and perfect God? Only God. Only God Himself. Our sins have to be covered by another, and it has to be someone who's perfect, sinless, someone who would do this voluntarily, and that someone is the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, God's unique Son, God's only Son, God's only begotten Son. It's no trifling matter. No other substitute would do. Only God can provide the sacrifice to save us from His own wrath against our sin that we deserve. And in sending His Son to pay the penalty we owe, God would become both just because He never leaves a sin unpunished, and He would be the justifier. He would provide Christ and pour out the punishment that we have earned on Him. Right? Jesus said to his disciples, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. I've seen that verse get quoted a lot in non-Christian circles. We can accept the truth of that statement. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. We love a hero story. So we like that. 
But what is hard to fathom is the depth of God's love, the extent of God's love that would have anyone offer up their own child in exchange for saving the life of someone who hates you, who does everything in their power to bring dishonor upon you and your family. Would you sacrifice the life of your only child, if you have one, for your worst enemy? You see, God's love knows no limits. That is essentially what He did. He sent His only Son to save a people like us, who willingly, who daily violate His law, who seem careless indifference. How deep is the love of God to send His only Son to save people who are in rebellion against Him? Well, second, I want you to see in this the expansiveness of the love of God, that the expansiveness of His love for His creatures and the lengths that He will go to to bring us into fellowship with Him. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, it calls it great love. This is great love of God. That though we were spiritually dead, when we were sinners, we were children of wrath, God takes action. Here's the verse we all know and love. But God, being rich in mercy, why? Why? Because of the great love with which He loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. But why? Because of the great love with which He loved us. We live through Christ, as our text says. We're made alive in Him. Because though the wages of sin is death, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It would be much easier and maybe a little easier for us to swallow if I stood here this evening and kind of did the reverse of John 3.16, right? That the Father so loved the Son that He gave the world to Him. And we would think that sort of made sense. God loved the Son, so He gave the world to Him because who wouldn't want us for a gift? We're pretty good people, right? We're all here in church on a Friday night. I mean, we're good. So He'd, of course, want us as a gift. Maybe not those other people, but us? Yeah, why not? But that's not what God did. That's not what God did. He did something different in His infinite wisdom. He sent His Son in the world to die. He so loved us that He sent His Son to die. God gave His Son so that whoever believes in Him, trusts Him, follows Him, will never perish but have eternal life. He sent His Son so that we would live through Him. Jesus died for a reason. He died on that cross so that we could have eternal life. The Father gave His only Son so that we could be forgiven. So we could be adopted as His children, we could be heirs with Christ, and we could forever know God's unending love. Well, third, take note of the severity of the love of God. And think of that verse in Romans, to know both the kindness and the severity of God. His Word says, He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. You can dwell on that a long time. That is the most loving thing and the most dreadful reality combined in one sentence. Because if you die tonight without turning from your sin, without submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in faith and trust, you will be cast into the lake of fire. You will bear the very just and very fair penalty for your sin against God for all eternity. To propitiate means that Jesus instead stepped in in your place, and He suffered the wrath of God that you would deserve. He did that in that period of agony that we read where He cried out, My God, my God, 
Why have you forsaken me? Well, it's easy sometimes for people to think, well, Jesus knew it was coming. He's the God-man. It must have been easier for him to accept that. But it's not. It's so much worse. Because sin is acceptable to us. Oh, sure, we can pick big sins that we don't like, but in general, sin is pretty acceptable to us. We can overlook it. We can look at people and make excuses for it. And we can say, I was tempted. I was made this way. Whatever. We can make lots of excuses for sin. So it's not that terrible. But for Christ, for the perfectly righteous, perfectly holy Son of God to accept the penalty for sin, to be sin in our place, that was the most horrifying reality. To be separated from the Father and bear His wrath. This is the Father with whom the Son had experienced perfect unity and love for all eternity. It was a departure of the Holy Spirit who had been poured on Him without measure. It was a dreadful and fearful reality that Jesus would undertake. And He would undertake it in obedience to the Father to save His people from their sin. That is why on the garden, on the eve of His rest, we read that Jesus knelt down and prayed saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. He's not talking about crucifixion. I would be begging and crying and and doing whatever it took to say, God, don't let me die that way. Let me die in my sleep before they crucify me. That is not Christ's prayer. Tens of thousands of men had been crucified. A horrible death. The cup that he is about ready to drink is the wrath of a holy God against the sin of all people he is about to save. He would know sin and the consequences. If you were willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So when you read those verses like John 3.16 that we know so well, we shouldn't read them flippantly. We should do it with a full understanding that the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and the love of God surpass all human understanding. That brings us to the fourth observation. God's love is a giving love. It is a giving love. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave. He so loved the world that he, He gave. He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. That will come later at the judgment. But in order that the world might be saved through Him. How? On the cross. The love of God is a gift. We don't earn it. We don't add to it. We don't take away from it. You see, this love we know because it was a gift from God. He gave His Son to die for our sins, and that was an act of mercy, and it was an act of grace. It was mercy because we are spared the fate that we deserve for all eternity by trusting in Him. It was grace. Because we get exactly the opposite of what we have earned. The love gift that is the Son of God draws us to the Father for all eternity. And this love, this gift, it's so vast that it satisfies God's righteous judgment against the sins of all people who will follow Jesus. All the debt was paid by the voluntary sacrifice on the cross. God's gift is immense. He doesn't just give any one or any gift to people he sent his son and no one and nothing is greater than his son as we've said and seen many times he didn't just send his son he sent him to die he could have sent jesus right to teach us about god to show us who god is and jesus did that 
He could have sent Jesus as an example so that we would see how do we more closely follow your word. And he certainly did that too. He could have sent Jesus just to be an example and be our friend. But instead, God sent Jesus to be our sacrifice. To pay for what we could not pay. So that we could be saved from eternal punishment that we deserve. And that brings me to the final point. Note that God's love is a perfect love. It is a perfect love of sovereign priority. He didn't save us because of us. He doesn't love us because of who we are or what we have done. And thank God for that. Thank God for that. Anyone who cries out to Him, He chose to love us. He chose us to love us in the deepest and most expansive way possible. We know love, as our verse says, not because we have loved God. We were not the initiators in this action, but because He loved us. This is so important. It's important because you hear people say, I could never turn to God because of my own sins. I could never go to church and worship Him because of who I am or what I have done. But God doesn't love us because we're good. That's not the starting point. The Bible tells us that our unregenerate minds are hostile to God, that we don't submit to to His Word. And in fact, it tells us that we are incapable of pleasing God altogether without the work of Jesus Christ, Romans 8. But God chose to love us. He chose to send His Son. And Jesus chose to save us by enduring the humiliation and suffering of the cross. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. It's really almost incomprehensible to look at the horror of the cross and fully comprehend the love of God, the extent to which He loves us, so far that He would send Jesus and put Him to grief. We read Isaiah 53, he would crush him willingly under the weight of the sins of all who will be saved by him, and he would make Christ an offering for our guilt, an offering he would accept, as we'll see when he is resurrected from the grave, which we celebrate on Sunday. If you want to know God's love, you look to the cross, because that is where his love is made known to sinners like us. It is there where we see first the horrible penalty that awaits anyone who denies Jesus as Lord and Savior. But for all who will rest in God's love, by turning to Jesus Christ in faith, by trusting in His perfect life, perfect obedience to God, His substitutionary death on the cross that atoned for sins, that propitiated, that paid for God's wrath against us. For everyone who will repent of sins and be forgiven by the once-for-all sacrifice Christ made, the love of God is experienced, it is known, and it is eternal as He grants eternal life, and that life starts now. The cross is, and it was, horrifying. But see in it the price that was required to bring you, to bring me into fellowship with God. And though Jesus suffered and died, He rose again. And to all who belong to Him by grace, through faith in Christ, who were bought with His blood, He makes this promise, the living Christ, the living Lord, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So as we go tonight, we should indeed grieve over the great lengths that God has gone, that Jesus went to save you and me from our sins. But we should do that as we turn to Him in faith, as we listen to Him in His word when He says, go, And sin no more. 
Find your joy. Find your rest in Christ Jesus. You serve the King of kings and Lord of lords. And you can truly know the love of God by looking at the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have only scratched the surface of what your love means. And that we would see it in one of the most horrifying pictures that we can imagine. That your son would choose and be required to bear such a terrible penalty. And that that is what it took to save us. Oh God, we cry out to you with thanksgiving. Let us be thankful every moment of every day. Remembering that it is by your great mercy by your grace and by your love that you chose to pour out your wrath on your son, a means of salvation we couldn't dream of in our wildest imaginations, but stand here today in awe that that is what you decreed from before creation, that indeed you love us so much that you would punish Jesus in our place. God, help us see that in Him. Let us see the glorious risen Lord, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and draw us closer to Him. Draw us to Him in faith and obedience. Lord, convict us of our sins and draw us to the one who promises to be faithful and just, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, build our faith. We cry out to you tonight. Like the man who cried to Jesus, I believe but help my unbelief. Lord, strengthen us each and every day. Use us as your ambassadors and help us love one another so that the world looks upon us and says, what's different about those people? That we have the opportunity to explain it is because we are loved by you and we love our Lord Jesus Christ in return. We pray all this in your name. Amen.